let's just pray and give this time to the Lord again. Jesus, we love you, we need you, and we pray that you would use us, God, in this, in this area of the city where there is literally 200,000 people within five miles of us right now. And I just pray, Lord, that you would use us to reach hundreds and thousands of them, if not all of them, Jesus. We want them to hear about your great love and be healed from the sin that, that corrupts all of us. And Lord, we just thank you so much for your great power and love and how you um, changed the whole world when you died on the cross and have certainly given us new life. So we just we look to you and we love you, Jesus. Amen. All right, turn to Matthew. Whoa, all these looks like, whoa. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. Don't worry, we're going to go to Galatians. <laughs> Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. We're going to start here tonight because it's Jesus talking. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, he says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I did not call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that's the verse that we're going to start on tonight. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to go and see if we can learn what that means. That Jesus does not, uh, that Jesus desires mercy more than sacrifice. That he loves mercy and he desires it. And what does that mean for us? And especially for the verses that we're going to be looking at. Turn with me back to Galatians now. As you know, we've been going verse by verse through Galatians and we are in the last chapter. We have gone through five whole chapters. Uh, it's been amazing as we've been waging this war on legalism. And seeing the great freedom that God has been has given us. And we've uh, most recently, the last few weeks, we've been learning that there's a battle raging in the life of every believer. And it's raging in you tonight. It's going on inside your heart, inside your very body and in your mind and in your spirit. And it's that battle between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh being our humanity, our rebellion, our... Um, our selfishness, our human resources that we come to the table with, and the spirit being God's presence, God's goodness, and God's love all imparted to us when we believe, given freely to us when we believe, and given freely to everyone who asks. And so this battle is going on. And you guys know we were, we were freed from, our, from uh, the penalty of sin and the, and the power of sin when we first believed. But that moment from the day we believed until the day we die is filled with all of this time that we're in right now. Since you believed, or maybe you haven't even believed yet, but that time when you believe, where you're born again, to the time you die is this entire life of growth. And then that, in that time, we are learning to live in the power of His Spirit. So, Here's a, a quote for you from Warren Wiersbe. It says, The influence of legalists among the Galatians made this warning necessary that we're going to look at in just a second. Nothing reveals the wickedness of legalism better than the way the legalists treat those who have sinned. So the question is, so let's go ahead and read uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, 
means he's talking to us, brethren, the people in the church. Not this isn't other people. This is us. I just want to establish that right off the bat. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So the question we're tackling tonight is, what happens when one of us believers draws from those resources of the flesh and sins? How are we supposed to react? How are we supposed to react? That first verse we read, go desire what this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Are we supposed to say, you need to sacrifice for that sin? Or is there a way that we can impart mercy in that relationship? And, and here's, here's three other, three different ways that we can react when a believer is caught in a sin. We can gossip about it. We can say, hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? Ooh, that's, that's glorifying to God. We can meet them with harsh judgment. In other words, we can say, how could you do such a thing, you sinner? I would never do such a thing. Or we could just approve of them because we don't like the conflict. How many of that is your natural way of dealing with things? Oh, boys will be boys. So I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to deal with that sin. Well, is there another option? Is there a better way to do this? Let's read that verse again. Brethren, if there is a man, overta- uh, if there is a man overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such one in that spirit of gentleness, considering yourself also, lest you be tempted. I'm going to read to you guys the New Living Translation, because sometimes it brings out different ideas, different ways of looking at it. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself sometimes our brethren fall into sin believers can be in that place of being overtaken by a sin but the thing is they can never stay there they can't stay there we as believers cannot live in a life that is dominated by sin or else we're not believers you're not a believer and no matter how much you say oh i believe in jesus If your life is one that's just marked and dominated by practicing sin, I mean really trying to get better at sin, then it's clear from the Bible that you're not a believer. But we we all know people that we love that that are believers, and they get caught up in a sin. They get caught up, and they get tripped up, and they get deceived. And that's what we're talking about here. What do we do in that situation? Here's a quote from Martin Luther. If we carefully weigh the words of the apostle, we perceive that he does not speak of doctrinal faults and errors, but of much lesser faults by which a person is overtaken through the weakness of his flesh. This explains why the apostle chooses the softer term fault 
to minimize the offense still more, as if he meant to excuse it altogether and to take the whole blame away from the person who has committed the fault. He speaks of them as having been overtaken, as seduced by the devil and of the flesh. This comforting sentence at one time saved my life. That's a quote from Martin Luther, that this sentence saved his life at a certain time. And I've been there, and maybe you've been there, where the weight of your sin, where you know the Lord, you've been walking with the Lord, but you sin, you do something wrong. Maybe you have an inappropriate relationship. Maybe you, your marriage fell apart because of your life of not caring or sin. Maybe your drinking got you in trouble. And you're at that place where you're totally broken and you're saying, is there anything, is this, is, this, is this my end? And the message we have is that he is not done with us yet. That the ones who are overtaken need to be restored. And that's our ministry in here, is to restore those who are overtaken in a sin. And that's what we're learning tonight. We are, our ministry is to restore. Our ministry is not to gossip about them. And our ministry is not to come down hard on them, but to have this heart that Paul explains, which is to restore them. Restoration is the answer. Restoration is God's heart. Not the gossiping about it, not coming down hard about it, not, not dealing with it, but restoring them. So restoring them. They're not to be ignored. They're not to be excused. They're not to be destroyed. The goal is always restoration. <clears throat> the verb here in Greek is katarizo, which means to put in order. And so to restore to its former condition. Uh, it was used in secular Greek as a medical term for setting a fractured or dislocated bone. Um, it was used in Mark chapter 1 to describe the disciples who were mending their nets. See, the nets, after they threw them out and they were fishing, the fish would wiggle around and then they'd catch a rock and a crab and the crab would break it and their net would get all messed up. Well, this net was like their job. It's like their computer if you're a, an accountant uh, or whatever. It, it was their job. And so they had to restore it to the proper working order at the end of every day. So they would spend time at the end of the day putting it back into its right place. The job of restoration is often neglected in church, in our church, in in the church in general. And we have a tendency to pretend that sin never happened on this side, or we tend to react too harshly to someone who sinned on this side. But the answer here, he says, you who are spiritual restore the person. So the answer is that we need to be spiritual if we're going to find the balance between these two extremes of saying, it doesn't really matter that you're cheating on your wife or I'm going to kill you that you're cheating on your wife (laughs) or I never, you know, to some other harsh reaction, I hate you or God hates you. There's got to be a balance between those two and there's got to be a spiritual answer to what this is. It's all too easy to just respond to someone's sin with those other ways. Turn with me to the book of Jude. <clears throat> Go to the right a little bit and find Jude chapter 1. Jude is right before Revelation. So turn all the way to the right of your Bible and then back it off a little bit. 
and you'll find Jude. Jude chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Jude is talking about the same thing here. He's talking about what the church needs to be doing with those who are caught up in a sin. He says in Jude chapter 1, verse 22, And on some having compassion, making a distinction, but on others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Wow. So Jude tells us that there's two ways that a believer can be spiritual in dealing with someone's sin. And it depends on the situation. It depends on the situation. He says some of them, we need to have compassion on them. And then other people, we need to scare them. Scare them. Tell them they are going to have severe consequences and let them know the bad stuff that comes with sin. Let them know the death and destruction and how much the enemy hates them and wants to destroy their marriage and their kids and their family and their own lives and their job and their ministry and everything. Scare them. Pulling them out of the fire. Grabbing them. And others have compassion. Others, we need to say, you know what? God loves you. He has compassion on you. He's provided for what you need. So come back with me. But both of them, we're getting them back on that right path. We're getting them. to. So how do we know which to do? How are you guys going to go tomorrow and with your, with your interactions with other believers? How are you going to know which one it is? It's a good question. We have to be spiritual. What does that mean, be spiritual? It means controlled or guided by the Spirit of God. Well, how do we get that? You ask for it. In the morning, when you wake up, ask His Holy Spirit to fill you as you spend time in His Word that will guide you for that day. The Holy Spirit will fill all who ask Him. Amen. There's an amen right there. Love it. So he says here, it's, we should do it in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So those who want to serve Jesus in this way of what, what Paul is asking us and Jude has asked us to do, confronting other believers on their sin and getting them back to the Lord, they have to be careful and guard themselves from two things. Number one, they have to guard themselves from the very thing that that person did. So whatever that person did, like Jude said, you hate even the garment that's defiled by the flesh. You stay far away from that thing. Because here's the thing. Someone can be describing their sin to you. They can be describing what they were a part of. And something in our flesh can get aroused by that. And we have to be very careful that we don't say, that does sound like a good time. <laughs> and we've got to be very careful that we don't do that. So he says, guard yourself from that. And number two, guard yourself from your pride, saying, well, I would never do that. You can tell me all about it, because I know I would never do that. So we have to guard ourselves from the very thing that they were involved with, and we guard ourselves from that pride. Here's a quote about what can happen if we don't guard 
A person who calls himself frank and candid can very easily find himself becoming tactless and cruel. A person who prides himself on being tactful can find eventually that he's become evasive and deceitful. A person who, with firm convictions, can become pig-headed. A person who is inclined to be temperate and judicious can sometimes turn into someone with weak convictions and banked fires of resolution. Loyalty can lead to fanaticism, caution can become timidity, freedom can become license, and confidence can become arrogance. Humility can become servility, and all these are ways in which strength can become weakness. So you are the stronger brother coming to your weaker brother who has sinned, but we have to guard ourselves because our flesh is so sneaky. It can rise up in the the quickest moment and all of a sudden you're right there with that brother. How many times have you heard about someone who went in to go help someone in a sin and then next thing you know, they're involved in that very thing? It happens. It happens. So turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. A little bit to the right, just a couple books. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Verses 14 and 16. I told you you'd need your Bibles. Or you can write them down like Kurt and then go back and study them later. Awesome. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. So as you read this verse, I, this is what happens to me sometimes. I say, yes, that's my job. I'm going to admonish my brothers. Oh, and it says here, I get to ignore them and then admonish them. <laughs> so that must be, I can do that. I can ignore them and then admonish them. And and we get this fleshly way of thinking how this work is supposed to be done. But that's not what he's talking about there. He's talking about ministering to them in love, but not getting too close. Because if they're living a life of sin, you don't want to get sucked in. You've got to guard yourself. But don't count him as an enemy, but as your brother. As your brother that you love without fail. But... I can't have as close a fellowship with you as I would like to. And sometimes that's the, that's the problem that we have when we know someone that's caught up in sin, especially if they're believers. They're like, well, how close do I get to them? What do I do to help them out of this situation? Well, let me tell you what not to do. Don't be too harsh. Turn with me to Numbers, way back in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 20. And let's read about a guy named Moses which you guys all know. A little episode in his life that teaches us about, about this uh, um, topic. So Numbers chapter 20, verse 10. And he says, And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. Now let me pause right there and explain the situation. They've been wandering around the desert... And they've just come out of Egypt, and they are thirsty. The people are thirsty. 
and the people are grumbling and complaining. But Moses has been instructed that he can go to this rock. And the first time he hit the rock and water came out and watered all the people. And then the next day the people are like, well, we're thirsty again. And Moses is like, he gets upset. And that's where we're at today. And, but God had told Moses, you hit the rock the first time, and then you just have to speak to the rock. But look what happens. Verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Must we bring water for you out of this rock? <laughs> then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly in the congregation, and their animals drank. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. He said, Moses, 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 because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I gave them. Ah, did you see what happened there? God wasn't mad at the children of Israel. He wasn't upset with them. He wasn't mad at them. They were thirsty. And they said, Moses, we're thirsty. And Moses is having a bad day. And he says, you rebels. Do I have to give you water? Out of the rock? Yes, Moses, that's your job. (laughs) You are the guy that gives the water out of the rock. Yes, that is exactly what you do. And they are like, the people are like, whoa. Did you... Get off the wrong side of the camel today or something, Moses? Jeez. And he just hits, hits the rock twice. Not, he was just supposed to speak to it, but he takes his rock and he smacks that rock that twice. And it was a terrible, terrible thing. It was a terrible example. Because then all the people are like, oh, God hates us. God's mad at us. And God wasn't mad at them. It misrepresented God to the people. See, God knows that your flesh is to blame for your sin. He knows that. He is at war with your flesh. He has no problem discerning your flesh. And your flesh doesn't change the fact that you're loved. And he understands you and he knows your weakness. He knew the people in Israel were thirsty. And he wasn't upset. And so let's apply this to us when we're dealing with people who we feel like are sinners and rebels. How do we represent God to them? It just doesn't work when we come at it with anger. When we come after their sin and say, your sin makes me so angry. Sin does make you angry. But that's not the way to restore a person. It's misrepresent God to them. What an accurate way to do is say, you have given into your flesh right now. These are fleshly desires. And if you let these fleshly desires grow in your life, they will lead to death and destruction and hurt everyone in your life, including you. And so I beg you to come back to the Spirit and fill your, be, be filled with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, ask Jesus for his help and spend time with him, and come back. Repent of this. None of that was done in anger, that conversation. And that's how we lead them. Look at Romans chapter 15, verse 1. 
Romans chapter 15, verse 1. So you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then Romans, Acts, and then Romans. <laughs> Romans chapter 15, verse 1. Another instruction from Paul on this issue. He says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Well, what in the world are scruples? <laughs> I, I had no idea. I had to look it up this morning. I read it, I read it, and then I looked in my Bible because it has a little number on it. It says number one there. So I looked in my margin, and it says scruples means weaknesses. Okay. So this applies. So I read this this morning in my devotions, and this applies to our study tonight. So we who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. And not to please ourselves. This isn't about us. And by bearing with them, it doesn't mean just, oh, those weak guys. But it's, it's our ministry to help these people along. So how do we do that? Well, here's, here's what I'm proposing to you as our game plan. We allow consequences to lovingly draw people back to Jesus. Turn with me to Second Samuel. Your fingers are going to get calluses on them. Paper cuts will abound when you come to Calvary. <laughs> Unless you use a Kindle. <laughs> or what, are, what is yours? Fire what? A nook. Okay. My wife has a nook. Second Samuel, chapter 12. So we're going to read a story right now. About David. And this is the story of how to restore someone. How, how we can be used by God to restore people in a spirit of gentleness. At this time, David had been king. We're going to just chapter 12. So at this time, David was king of Israel. Things had been going pretty good. He was getting kind of lazy. He sent all his battles, his army off to war when he should have been out there fighting the wars. But he just stayed back in his temple and he's chilling one day and he looks and sees Bathsheba bathing. And he says, I'm going to go get her to be my wife. So he goes, finds out she's married. So he kills. He sleeps with her anyway, but he kills her husband, Uriah, and he tries to hide it. He, he, oh, it's just a big, huge mess. That's where we're at right now. So the Lord should kill David, right? Or gossip about him. <laughs> My king who I've appointed is such a terrible king. But that's not what God does. What does God do? God sends a prophet to David. Just like he's going to send you into the life of those around you who are overtaken in a sin. And he, the Lord said, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, Hey, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now, that may be a little bit overboard for a sheep in your house, but hey, 
That's where he was in his life. So, verse 4. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who came to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. He shall restore fourfold the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity or mercy. And I want you guys to think back about that first verse that we read in Matthew. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. You're that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Wow. Wow. What great statements of love. He's saying, David, I have loved you. I have proved it with my actions. I have loved you. Not David, you're such a terrible sinner. David, I hate you. He's going back to love. And he says, verse 9, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. These are consequences now. Look at, watch their consequences. Because you have despised me. You've despised me, our relationship, the thing that hold, held us together. David, you were a man after my own heart. We had love. I loved you. I provided for you. But you despised me. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of, his, of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, blaspheme. And the child also was born shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. Wow. So God restores David to the relationship. And he says the sin has been put away. But the consequences, look at this. You have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. When people in our lives sin, we have to help them to understand that they are being a terrible witness for Jesus and the blood that he shed on the cross. And people say they will see that sin And it gives them an opportunity to say, look, God's people have no morality better than I do. And it it, it hurts God's reputation because God went all in for us. He called us his people. 
And so when we get overtaken in a sin, we have to make that clearly understood to people that you're affecting. God is taking the reputation hit, not necessarily you. God is taking the hit for you. And he restores you the relationship, but you've given enemies an occasion of blaspheme, and also the child who is born shall surely die. Whatever you were hoping to accomplish from this sin, from your way of doing things, is never going to work. It is never going to produce the fruit that you thought it would. It is never going to bring life into your life or anyone else's life. And those are the two things that we help people understand when we're restoring them. That the relationship is absolutely available to them. But there is consequences still. And they need to be aware of it. And then we need to lovingly help them walk through those consequences. What happens in the rest, rest of this chapter? David grieves. He cries and weeps. In fact, turn over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. This is the psalm that David wrote on this day. It even says right there in the title, it says, A prayer of repentance to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So David goes through a time of of real great trial and and sorrow. But restoration, is, is, is that's the process of restoration. And so let's read this and see what's going on in the heart of, De- of David. Have mercy on me, O God. Again, go back to Matthew. The Lord desires mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts And in the hidden parts, you make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. That, and I, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my praise shall show forth. My mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness and with the burnt offering and the whole burnt offering. And they shall offer bulls on your altar. 
David there goes through this process of restoration with the Lord. It's a process. And Nathan got him to get into this process. And so for you guys, I want you to become skilled at drawing people back to where Psalm 51 is their heart. Even tell them, bro, you're overtaken in a sin. Go read Psalm 51. Because sin, you can't do that. You can't be overtaken. You can't stay in that place. Go read Psalm 51. Spend time, read it to them. It describes perfectly that heart of coming back and that restoration. So, David comes back to his relationship with the Lord. The reason why Lord, the Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice is because his mercy draws us back into relationship. When our, we can have a relationship with God based on mercy. We can't really have a relationship with God based on our sacrifices. We, he made the sacrifice, and then so we ask him for mercy, and that is the foundations of a strong relationship. Because it has nothing to do with us and our weakness and our frailty and our sacrifices. It has everything to do with the sacrifice he made and us just coming to him for mercy. So, he's not done with you yet is kind of the message and the idea that we come and we bring people back to Psalm 51. We bring people back to relationship and we tell them God's not done with you yet. He's going to restore you. And I'm not going to gossip about it. I'm not going to come down hard on you because I understand it's your flesh. But I'm going to restore you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for um, that you're a God who gives second chances. You're a God who makes us new when we fail. And just like David, when we have... Um, been in a sin, have been overtaken, and our flesh has risen up, and, and we've given into it, and given into temptations. Lord, you restore, and and we will forever sing your praises, and we will forever be pursuing that intimate relationship with you. And Lord, when we see our brothers and sisters caught up in a sin, Lord, I pray you would help us to be skillful at bringing them back into relationship with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.